Thanks for tuning in to the Met Church Podcast. Here at the Met, we're all about connecting people to God and one another. If you have any questions or want to get more information about what is going on here at the Met, then head over to our website, metchurch.com. We would love to stay connected to you throughout the week through social media. So please be sure to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now please enjoy the message. in your destination, when you're taking a trip and you lock in your destination, the first thing that will happen is that GPS system in your car will try to find you the very best route. It'll give you some options, but it will give you the best route. Now, what I want to talk to you about a little bit this morning is finding a better way, a better route. Uh, There are people who will follow certain paths because they are familiar, because they've always done it that way, and they are a little hesitant or resistant to changing when we talk about finding a new way or finding a better way. Some people just don't do that because they resist any kind of change. Someone said the only people that like change are wet babies, <laughs> and there may be something to that. I'm just suggesting you this morning, though, on, uh, on our way to heaven, somewhere between here and there, we're going to find that we're going to be rerouted oftentimes along the way because God is moving us on a path that is a better path better than the one we would have chosen for ourselves. Now, sometimes it doesn't feel that way, and sometimes it doesn't seem that way, but as I talked about last week, if you genuinely follow God, if you are focused on him, even though there may be some storms along the way and there may be some difficulty along the way and a few blowouts along the way, you will find his way is the best way. And so I wanna challenge you, I hope it's a challenge to you this morning, to to get on the right path to discover God's plan for your life and truly find the better way. When I grew up, my family, we would take vacations together a lot. My dad was really good about getting away and taking us kids and my mom. And we would go sometimes up to Table Rock Lake area, right? And we would hit the Branson area and do all that thing. Well, my dad would always go up Highway 69 uh, through Kiwal, Oklahoma, which is my mom's hometown, hand over my heart when I talk about Kiwal. Speed trap now, so I'll just give you a heads up. But anyway, the point is, as you'd go up there, we, he would hit Big Cabin, way up Highway 69, catch the interstate, we'd go through Joplin, over into Springfield, and then there was a, a, a church meeting that he would do for a couple of days there, so us kids would endure the church. We on vacation, you don't do that. Anyway, we would go through the church thing, oh, for the love of God, can we go to vacation? Anyway, so finally it would end, and we would go on over to the Branson area in Table Rock Lake. we have a great time, had a lot of memories doing that. So when Cindy and I got married, I thought, well, what are we gonna do that? I wanna have that experience, so we drove up, we went all the way up Big Cabin, moved across Joplin over Springfield, dropped down into Branson, Table Rock Lake area. We had a great time. We had kids. Same thing. Took the kids up there. Had a great time up there. We did Silver Dollar City, all that stuff. We'd go up Big Cabin across to uh, Joplin down to Springfield over to uh, uh, Table Rock, uh, uh, Branson and have fun at Table Rock Lake. Uh, and so a couple of years ago, Shannon and Rick took the kids and they went on up. Billy and Whitney rode with us. And so we're on our way, same trip, we're on our way. We're gonna head up there now, we're gonna go up, and I'm on my path, I'm moving along. And Billy looks at his uh, uh, phone, and he goes, uh, so dad, why are you going all the way up to Big Cabin and across to Joplin and over to Springfield to get to Branson? I said, because I've always done it that way. 
I mean, I didn't even lift, I had GPS, but I never lived. I knew this path. This was a very familiar path. My parents had taken me, Cindy and I had gone. I mean, I could almost drive this in, the, in my eyes closed, almost. I'm just saying, it was a very familiar path to me. But on his GPS, he goes, you know, if you cut off at about north of Eufaula on I-40 and you go over to Fort Smith and then go on up to, you know, the Fayetteville and you could take the southern route, you know, Dad, I don't, you know, be a smart aleck here, but you'd save about three hours. <laughs> Can I tell you on a Sunday morning, I am not a smart man. <laughs> that was... All those years and all those trips, I was going three hours out of my way and three hours out of my way back simply because I'd always done it that way, right? Remember the old story of the like Christmas time when they would, all the family would come over and the lady would uh, you know, cut the ham, put the ham in the pan and, 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 and bake the ham. And one day uh, uh, the daughter looks at her mom and she says, mom, why do you always cut the end of the ham off? And why do we waste the end of that ham? Why, why don't you just cook the whole thing? She goes, well, my grandmother taught me to cook that way. It, 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 you know, it's better, you, you, it keeps the ham juicier and all this kind of explanation. And she said, so we've always cut the end of the ham off before we, she goes, really? That just doesn't seem right. She goes, well, let me ask. I've never really asked her. Let me ask my grandmother why we've always done it because she said, my mom taught me that way. And so she goes to grandma and they ask the grandmother, well, why do you cut the end of the ham off, grandma, before we put it in the oven? She said, because when I grew up, we didn't have a pan that large. <laughs> I'm just saying, sometimes we do what we do and don't really stop to think about, is it really the best way to do this, right? Even in church, we get into traditions, now look, there's nothing wrong with a tradition. Traditions are good, provided they're still effective. In other words, here's what a tradition is. A tradition is something that a church did at one point to communicate a principle or some type of teaching of God's word, and it was effective. So they kept doing it, and it became their tradition. That's all a tradition is. And so from time to time, you have to ask yourself, is this tradition that we are embraced, that we'll just die on that hill over that tradition, is it still effective? And if it's not effective, find a better way. Now that's easier to say in a contemporary church like this. You try what I just said in a very traditional church, for the love of God, that is a hard, you ever tried to kickstart a 747? That's, it's very similar to that experience, trying to change a very traditional church to find a new way. Oh, anything new is compromise. You know, you don't want new, you don't want compromise. Uh, it, it, uh, here's what I found. I found sacred cow makes good hamburgers. <laughs> so I'm not hating on tradition. I love my tradition background. I'm just saying you have to stop sometimes and ask yourself, is this effective? Does this work? And if the answer is no, then why are you still doing it? You do that in relations, you repeat, 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 repeat. You do that financially, you repeat, repeat, repeat. You do that in your career. And sometimes in our church experience, we do the same things. It's, remember that old saying of the kid on the well-worn path, if you always do what you've always done, you will always get what you've always gotten. Somebody else said, if you always think what you've always thought, you will always get what you've always gotten. So I'm just suggesting you this morning that God is doing new things. Isn't that radical? <laughs> yeah, thank you for that. God is doing a new thing. In fact, Isaiah 43, he says, behold, I'm doing a new thing. God put it out there. He said, I'm doing something very new and revolutionary. So I'm trying to challenge your thinking this morning to the idea of being open to a better way. 
Some of you are going three hours out of the way. <laughs> you're doing that in your relationships. You're doing that in every area of your life when all along there is a more effective and there is a better way. Now, to really uh, to, to, to capture where I want to go with the talk, I, I want us to look at a book that really talks about better things. In fact, the theme of the book is better things. It's the book of Hebrews. And in the book of Hebrews, he talks about better things. And he's talking to Jewish people who had become very um, stumped and very beholden and very uh, locked in to their traditions. The ceremonial law, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. And the writer of Hebrews is telling them the Messiah came. His name is Jesus. Jesus came into the world. You don't need to go to the temple and offer these sacrifices anymore. Jesus came. He offered one sacrifice for sin forever. And so he talks to these uh, people about the fact we have a better sacrifice. Jesus is the better sacrifice. He says, by the way, he is a better priest. We can go to our high priest. His name is Jesus. He he's a better priest. He said, we have a better salvation. Our salvation now is secure. In the Old Testament, they were never fully secure because the fact that salvation was not complete. What do I mean by that? Hebrews 11, it says, those Old Testament saints died in faith, not receiving the promise. Promise of what? The promise of the Messiah. In other words, they died in faith, believing that one day Jesus would come. Now, Abraham never saw Jesus. Moses never saw Jesus. He died in faith, believing Jesus would one day come, and that faith is what secured his salvation. But I'm saying to you, we look back now in faith, believing one day Jesus did come. So my salvation is a better salvation because it's rooted in the security that Jesus Christ came, he died, he rose again, he ascended, and now when I receive him, I have the presence of the Holy Spirit who seals me in the deal. So I have a confidence that a lot of the Old Testament saints didn't have. So he's writing saying, he's a better sacrifice, he is a better priest, he offers a better salvation, he's a better way. Why are you still holding on to your rituals? Why are you still holding on to all of those things, thinking those things will get you into heaven when there is a better way? And so he's challenging them to kind of let go of some ways they used to do some things and embrace some things uh, that are new and are revolutionary in their thinking and in their, in their daily walk. In fact, in um, Hebrews chapter three, he talks about people who left Egypt following Moses, those Old Testament saints who left Egypt following after Moses and they were very um, uh, uh, fixed on reaching Canaan, right? They left Egypt, going to Canaan, following after Moses. But in Hebrews 3, it says a large number of them never got there. They got out of Egypt, but they didn't make it to Canaan. And can I tell you, I talk to people every weekend that have moved a little, but they haven't moved a lot. Some people are, 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 are believing in God enough that he can, they believe that he can keep them out of hell, but they don't believe in him enough to believe that he can really revolutionize and change their life, Right? They have enough faith to get out of Egypt, but not enough faith to get into Canaan, right? And in Hebrews 3, he talks about what it was that kept that group of people out of Canaan. Here it is. He said, sheer unbelief. You, you just, you, you, you don't believe. The Bible says, according to your faith, be it unto you. 
So he ties in this achievement, accomplishment, he ties in this destination with this element of our faith. And by the way, there are two types of unbelief. One type is what I would call ignorant unbelief. It's when a person is not a Christ follower, they're lost, but they don't know they're lost. Uh, For example, Paul in Romans 7, he was holding on to his religion. He was holding on to the rituals of his religion. He was believing that his religion would be good enough to get him into heaven. In fact, he talked about how good he was in one place. He talks about of the tribe of Benjamin. He talks about how he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, who was the chief rabbi in Jerusalem. He was a brilliant student. He was a rabbi. He was a religious man, but he was lost. But it was ignorant unbelief. He was lost and didn't know he was lost. I talk to people like that every weekend. I say, what are you counting on to get you into heaven? They say, my religion. You know, I'm a this or I'm a that or this is my brand name or this is all this sort of, and they're counting on that to be good enough to get. I talk to other people, what are you counting on to get you into heaven? Well, I'm a pretty good person. Uh, you know, I, I, I try to do right by my fellow man. I'm, I'm very generous and I try to do right for other people and I'm counting on my righteousness to get me into heaven. I've told you before, I wouldn't count the best five minutes I've ever lived to be good enough to get me into heaven. The Bible says all of our righteousnesses in the eyes of God are like filthy rags. He says there is none that does good, no, not one. So I'm suggesting to you it's not religion, it's not rituals, it's not righteousness. Paul had all of that. And you read what he said in Romans 7. Here's what he said. The day I realized that could not get me into heaven, he uses this expression in the King James. He said, sin revived, I died. What what happened there? He had an epiphany. He had this moment where he realized, oh my gosh, I've been counting on the wrong thing. I've been thinking this would get me into heaven and I I didn't know that it wouldn't. And all of a sudden he said, sin revived, I died. Now he didn't physically die, he means spiritual death. I realized, man, I've been counting on something to get me into heaven and that's not good enough to get me there. I'm just suggesting your heart this morning, there are a lot of people in this room and they'll be watching online who are in that realm of just ignorant unbelief. They're lost and really don't know they're lost. They're good people. They may even be on a good road, but if you're going the wrong way on a good road, it just takes you to the wrong place that much faster. <laughs> and I'm just saying, I'm just suggesting to you this morning that there are a lot of people that are in that category, ignorant unbelief. But here's the second category, and this is what he's talking about in Hebrews 3, before I get to my text. He's talking about not ignorant unbelief, get this guys, rebellious unbelief. That's when you know the truth and you don't care what the truth is. That's when you know he's the savior and you just outright reject him. And the scary thing about that is when you read Genesis five, the Bible says my spirit will not always strive with a person. Meaning there comes a time when you tell God no so many times that he will finally say, okay, I'm done, we're done here. You've turned me down, you've rejected me, you've said no. So he just simply withdraws the convicting power of the Holy Spirit from your life. Let me support that a little more. In John chapter five, you hear this expression, Jesus says, they will not come to me that they might have life. He's talking about those lost people that he ministered to, he said they they, they won't, will not, men their will. They, they, They have a choice, they have a will, they have a mind, but they will not exercise their will to receive Jesus. They will not come to me that they might have life. Read John eight, you know what he says? They cannot come to me that they might have life. What's the principle? 
The principle is willful rejection of Jesus can lead to judicial rejection by Jesus. Do you follow that? You can turn him down to the point that he will then turn you down. Uh, 2 Timothy 2 verse four, speaking of bad doctrine, he says concerning people and being turned, they then are turned. One is voluntary, the other is involuntary. Being turned, they will be turned. Meaning a person can cross a line where they turn their back on God and finally God just turns their back on them. And when I talk about that, invariably somebody will send me a text or they'll catch me in the lobby and go, man, I'm worried I may have crossed that line. Maybe I've gone too far. And I always tell them, the fact that that bothers you tells me you hadn't gone that far. If you'd gone that far, that wouldn't bother you. I'm just suggesting that there is a type of rejection that is in, rooted in ignorance and a type of rejection that is rooted in rebellion. And the people in Hebrews three, it was rebellion. They knew the truth, they knew the way, they knew what they should do, and they outright rejected Jesus. And you know what happened? They didn't get into Canaan. Willful rejection, judicial rejection. So for 40 years, the people of God are just wandering around the wilderness, waiting on that generation to die off. The number 40, 40 years in the Bible always speaks of a generation. So here's an entire generation that didn't get into Canaan, simply because they refused a better way. So let's pick it up. Look in Hebrews 4, just for a few moments. And in Hebrews 4, notice what he says, therefore. He opens the chapter with that word. Remember, when you see the word therefore, always look and see what it's there for. It connects what he has just said with what he's about to say. He said, because they rejected, because these people had opportunity, all they had to do is stay in the path, all they had to do is continue to follow, and they rejected, their hearts were hardened and they rebelled, therefore, uh, they, they didn't get into Canaan, but I want you to know, there is a promise. The promise remains of entering into his rest. He said, I hadn't, I hadn't withdrawn that promise. Just as ultimately the children of Israel made it to Canaan land, he said, there is a, a Canaan land for you to achieve. And this Canaan land involves rest. Now let me explain this to you. Some people believe Canaan is a picture of heaven. And when they study the children of Israel journeying to Canaan, now it's, you can apply it, it's a good application, but it's not the proper interpretation. Right? There's many applications, there's only one interpretation of a text. And the way you tell how to properly apply a text is you use this rule if it, does not if it does not violate any other principles of scripture when you apply a text, then it's okay to apply it that way. For example, now I'm really chasing a rabbit, but stay with me, I'll never, if I don't explain this, I'll be up, uh, bother me all afternoon. <laughs> it's my ADHD. Anyway, <laughs> there is in, in, in Revelation three where he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. You say squirrel, and I'll be off on that. Anyway, he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my uh, voice and open the door, I'll come into them and sup with them and he with me. Well, that's, that, uh, when I was a kid and the, the Sunday school teachers taught that, they talked about Jesus knocking on your heart's door, right? Saying, let me, well, that's an application. But actually, the interpretation is he's on the outside of a church wanting in. <laughs> that's the interpretation. Do you see what I mean when I say interpretation, application? So, uh, Canaan, the interpretation of Canaan is it wasn't heaven. You know why? People got sick in Canaan. People died in Canaan. Heaven I'm going to, nobody's gonna get sick. Nobody's gonna die. So what does Canaan represent symbolically? It represents, one, one uh, theologian said, he called it the heavenlies in Christ Jesus, the fullness of God. It represented, I'll call it a zone. 
that you can get in when you are really genuinely in fellowship and connected and in sync with God. You're following his path. You're really right with, you're in that zone, right? That's Canaan. And he's saying, you, you need to know, even though some people miss this, this rest remains and it's available for you. But notice this expression, however, let us fear lest any of you come short of it. In other words, lest you miss it. Now, last week I told you not to fear, right? This week he's saying there are some things you should fear. And one of the things he says you should fear is you should fear coming close and missing it. For some of you guys coming close to receiving Jesus as your savior and missing him. For others of you that have received him as your savior, coming close to being in that zone where you're experiencing the fullness of God, but you miss it. I hate to get to heaven one day and God look at me and say, Bill, you left so many other things down there that I had for you that you didn't take advantage of because you insisted on your way and not my way. That's what he's getting at. He says, be careful, be, 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 uh, be cautious, be fearful even, he uses that word, that you seem to come short of this rest, this fullness, this peace of God that's available for you. And then he goes on to say, for indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as it was to them. Do you know the gospel's always been preached? I said a moment ago, there aren't two ways to get to heaven. There wasn't an Old Testament way and a New Testament way. Remember, the Old Testament saints were saved by looking forward to the cross. We're saved by looking back at the cross. So here the, he's saying here that this gospel was preached. What is the gospel, by the way? 1 Corinthians 15, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus according to the scriptures. That's what the word means, good news. So he said it was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them. Now he's talking about the group back in chapter three. Remember the word therefore. He's saying that there was a group of people that heard the same thing you're hearing this morning, same gospel, but it didn't profit them. Here's why. He said it was not mixed with faith by those who heard it. Did you know it's possible to hear a message and it not profit you, not benefit you? You can hear a motivational speech and leave not motivated. <laughs> you can go uh, hear a comedian <laughs> and never laugh. And I mean a funny one. Uh, you can go watch a singer and not leave entertained. It is possible to have an experience that could potentially impact your life and you miss it. What he's saying here on a spiritual level is be afraid that you not miss this important connection, that opportunity you have to connect with God. We don't give him much time. We give him about an hour of our week on this weekends and we do a little touch and go with Jesus and, you know, and then we're about out on our work. But in this little moment, man, be, be careful that you not miss something he might be trying to tell you. Some of you, it might be to receive him, and others of you, it might be to follow a different path than the path you've been on, to find the better way. And there's three distinct things in this little narrative that talks about why this message did not profit them. And by the way, God is interested in profit. Everything he created, he created for it to bring a profit. Remember, he said concerning creation, be fruitful, multiply. Remember when Jesus walked by the fig tree and the fig tree wasn't producing figs? The Bible says he cursed it. He didn't cuss it, he cursed it. There's a difference. In other words, he, he said, you as a tree are not doing what you were designed to do. You're taking up resources and you're producing nothing. It's all about you. Enough about me, now you talk about me. <laughs> and he's just saying you're just a self-centered, egotistical, egoistical individual that it's all about you and there's nothing positive that's being produced from your life. That's what he said about the fig tree because he designed the fig tree to produce fruit so other people could be benefited by it. 
But you know, my life is designed for somebody to benefit off of me. If I'm gonna be profitable, then I should bring value to you. You should be better because you know me. I should be better because I know you. We ought to bring value into each other's lives. We ought to be better people because we're in fellowship and relationship with one another. And all I'm saying is, here the Bible is, the most powerful word in the world. It is being taught to these people and they're not benefiting from it. There's no profit. And I suggest to you that some of them that heard it didn't really hear it. That's one reason it doesn't profit if you don't hear it. In in, uh, Revelation three, the first three chapters, it says, he who has ears to hear, let them hear. A lot of people have good ears, but they don't hear. You have any kids? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You ever said thing over and over and over? And, oh, over ad nauseum to get. And they don't. I didn't hear you. You know, for the love of God, how could you not heard me? They had ears. They didn't hear. That's why I think we have one mouth and two ears. Maybe we're supposed to listen twice as much as we talk. I'll be honest. I've never learned anything when I was talking, <laughs> and I don't even believe everything I've ever heard myself say. <laughs> So I'm just telling you this morning that hearing is a powerful thing. And I think many times the word doesn't profit people because they're here, but they don't hear. And then not only that, it wasn't believed. They heard it, but they didn't believe it. Look, if you don't believe what you're hearing, it'll never profit you. That's the Bible, those other books, right? You gotta hear it, you gotta believe it. And then the mix with faith aspect of this means it has to be applied. You have to apply it. It's like, we call these big holy huddles, these church gatherings on the weekends. We meet in here, we get a play off the playbook, which is God's word. We break the huddle, we go out on the field in the real world, and we're supposed to execute. But guys, if we didn't hear the play, and we don't believe, and we don't execute, you never advance. So with that said, let me give you three thoughts and we'll go home. Is this fair enough? I'll do this in six minutes and 15 seconds. (laughs) Have a clock. Tick tock. Number one, this involves concentration. You got the idea from you, didn't you, when I talked about be fearful, lest you miss this. You gotta listen. Those are intense language, meaning you need to focus here. You need to, it's like when you're going on a different path, when you're trying to cut three hours off your trip to Table Rock and it involves a new way. I was a little more tuned in at that point uh, to the GPS because I hadn't been that way before. Turn right here, turn left. If you go, if you keep going straight, it's gonna, it's 15 more minutes. I'm telling you, turn right, right? It, it involved concentration. You, you gotta be in the zone to be able to stay on the better way. In fact, it, it, I, I hit chapter three. If you go back to Hebrews two, listen to this. In Hebrews two, verse one, he says, this is, this is really interesting. He said, we must pay the most careful attention You get the phrasing, most careful attention. We must uh, 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 pay the most careful attention to what? To what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. That you don't miss the path. You don't miss the, the road. Pay attention. And he uses this word, this expression, drift away. It's a nautical term. Just like I'm using the metaphor GPS, they didn't have that then, so they talked about ships and sailing, and that was the metaphor most, a lot of those guys used. Everybody was familiar with that, right? So this idea of drifting away, if you lived in that century and you were a person familiar with the mariners and, and those who, who, were, who were skilled in that, in that discipline, you would understand that the most important thing of bringing a ship to shore was when you were coming into the harbor. 
because there's rocks and reefs, there's a dock there, you've got more traffic there, there are other vessels there, and it doesn't take any skill out at sea to steer the vessel. You could have one of the kids come up and steer the vessel for a little while, I'll have fun, knock yourself out. But man, when you're bringing that ship to shore and you're coming into that harbor and you're gonna to try to dock that vessel, it requires enormous skill. That's the expression, give careful attention to this, to what, to what you've heard. What were they hearing? They're hearing stuff like I'm teaching you this morning. So what if I don't? He said, you drift. The current will carry you away. Listen, you never drift the right way. <laughs> you don't just drift toward God. Oh, I just quit reading my Bible. I quit, so I quit going to church and I feel so spiritual now. It's like I'm being married to someone and you never talk to them. We're so close now because we never, we never fight. No, you don't see each other. <laughs> You're never around each other. It's not rocket science. I'm just suggesting to you that it takes, it takes some attention. It takes some focus. It takes concentration to stay on the path. Let me color it a little more. To know sometimes when to speak up. To know sometimes when to shut up. <laughs> to know sometimes when to go and sometimes when to stop. Did you know there is the release of the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit goes? But did you know there is the restraint of the Holy Spirit when he says stop? Paul said, we wanted to go in Bithynia, but then he said the Spirit forbade us. What did he do? He pulled back on the reins. You ever taught one of your kids how to drive? Remember those gloriously blissful days? A friend of mine owns a body shop around here. He said, I can always tell when we got a fresh bass of 16 year olds with their license. I think it'd be a neat thing if, if we required in the community, uh, you know, a big uh, thing like I had on dune buggies, those big orange aerials that they have to attach that to the bumper of a new driver. Wouldn't that be helpful? Then you could get up on the curb. Well, no, that's probably where they're gonna drive. <laughs> anyway, the point is, I don't, I'm not hating, I love the new drivers. Uh, where was I going with that? No, the point is, <clears throat> I really don't know where I was going with that, honest to God. It's completely slipped me. Were anybody paying attention? <laughs> it's on you now. You should have been paying the close attention. You know I can't keep thoughts and tracking in the right way. You know me better than that. It, what? What? Restraint. Thank you. Give her a hand. You're exactly right. That's awesome. Now we'll get out of here in a minute and 52 seconds because of you. I'd have been up here going, for the love of God, I can't remember where I was going with that. Restraint, right? Okay. That's when he says no. He pulls back the reins. and you're, Oh, that's it. When you're teaching a kid how to drive, <laughs> honest to God, my mind just found that thought. Isn't that scary? And some of you come hear me all the time. Isn't that great? Um, well, thank you. <laughs> In spite of that. So the point is, what is the, what is the first thing you point to with your kids when you're teaching them how to drive? The accelerator or the brake pedal? Right. They know how to go. They don't know how to say no. They don't know how to stop. I'm just suggesting to you that when you're tracking and you're giving attention to God's uh, leadership in your life, now we're tracking, then you, you know when he says go, when he says stop, when he says speak, when he says give this a little more time, this is not yet time. So I'm saying the better path involves concentration. Now, if I, I've got to keep my word here. Number two, it involves correction, course correction. You gotta constantly be correcting the course. When you get out here in just a minute and you hit the road, you, you may know the restaurant you're going to or know the house that you're driving to, but how many times will you have to correct your course on the way? There'll be people pulling out in front of you, there's gonna be things you did, and there's, a, there's potholes, there's all. I'm, I'm just saying, when you're on the better path, you constantly have to correct your course. There's changes you have to make. 
There's different things you have to do. There's decisions that it requires constantly. If you're going to get where you're going to be, even on the better path, you have to constantly correct your course. Now, in their case, they had to correct this religious tradition that was all over them. In, in the Hebrews' time, they were, they were still so steeped in their religion that they had to get away from that to embrace Jesus and let go of what they had been taught all those years. In fact, there's an interesting analogy uh, in, in Numbers 21. Remember when Israel had just rebelled against God and he sent the snakes among them and he told Moses, he said, go kill a serpent, put the serpent on the pole and lift it up and tell the people, if you'll look to the serpent, you'll live it was a prophecy concerning Jesus one day who would be raised up on the cross. Uh, and the Bible says in John 12, when I am lifted up, I'll draw all men to me. And so if you look to Jesus, you live. But in Numbers 21, if you were bitten by a snake, but you could look at the serpent on the pole, you'd live. We still carry that in the medical profession today. You still see that imagery of healing of the serpent on a pole. But you know what happened after that incredible miracle in Numbers 21? They deified that symbol. The symbol was something God used in Numbers 21, but he moved away from it. Because it wasn't about that, it was about him. He just used that. But they deified the symbol, we tend to do that. And what they did, when you fast forward this analogy and go to 2 Kings chapter 17, Moses is long dead and gone. That generation of people, long dead and gone. Hezekiah is the king and God is not blessing the people. And Hezekiah says, why aren't you blessing us? And then God says, because the people are worshiping me in one hand and they're following after the idols in the other hand. And when you read the narrative, you know what the idol that he mentioned was this serpent on a pole. They deified this symbol. And there's a Hebrew word that Hezekiah used, he calls it nehushtan, means a little brass thing. Now, boy, in Numbers 21, that was look and live, right? That was the symbol. God was all over that. Second Kings 17, he ain't there anymore, he's moved. They're holding into something, they're holding on to a method that he used years ago that he's no longer using and they deified the symbol and it, and it insulted God. Remember one of the top 10 is, you don't make it any graven images. Can you imagine, fellas, if you told your wife, hey, yeah, you know, this is beautiful lady and, and we spend time together and go to lunch, we're, we're spending a lot of time together and the reason I'm hanging out with her, honey, is because she reminds me of you. That's it. When I'm with her, I think of you. Any woman in the room buying that? Any woman in the room buying that? Yeah, honey, I'm, that's the only reason I'm there is I'm just thinking of you. That's a graven image. That's why it's offensive to God. You can have the real thing, but you're embracing. What they, what they were doing, they were embracing this symbol, Nehushtan, and God had moved on. Course correction. And here's what it results in, thirdly. It involves a consequence. What was the consequence? Salvation, consequence was peace. The consequence was God's favor on their life. And friend, that's a great consequence. I, I pray that and wish that and hope that for everybody in the room, that you would know him, know his salvation, be in a relationship with him, have his peace, have his joy. Listen, there is a better way. There is a better way, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that never returns void. I pray this morning that if there's one in the room or one watching online or will watch at some point that has never trusted you as their savior, that they'll swallow their pride and they'll realize you are the better way. You said in John 14, six, I am the way, the truth, the life. You're the better way. So Father, help them just to humble their heart and say, Lord Jesus, 
Come into my life, forgive my sin. I believe you died on a cross and I believe you rose on Easter and with all that is in me, I trust you. And for those who do know you but have drifted, they're not connected as they once were connected. Maybe the storms of life have knocked them off course or maybe some kind of issue in life has caused some distance between you and them. Father, I pray something might have been said this morning to help them realize that the way isn't perfect and the way doesn't involve a lot of storms, but it is a better way. We're better off with you than without you. So Father, I pray there'll be some people in the room that'll just say, God, I've drifted, but this morning I'm coming home. And Father, finally, for those who need someone to pray over them before they go home, I, I pray as soon as I dismiss, they'll find their way here to the front. Let someone spend a few moments just to encourage them and pray for them before they go home. And Lord, for all the kids going back to school and all of our teachers who are there and educators, I pray you'll bless and protect them, give them a great year. I pray, Lord, that we'll see some incredible things happen in the lives of our students through this school year. And Father, we'll give you thanks. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for tuning in today with us. If you have any questions or prayer requests, please contact us so we can follow up with you this week by visiting metchurch.com. We look forward to seeing you again next week. 